Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. Today we have Thomas Patterson. He is the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. He's the author of numerous articles and books, many award-winning books, including Informing the News, The Vanishing Voter, Out of Order, The Mass Media Election, and The Unseeing Eye. Today's topic is a new book he has entitled How America Lost Its Mind, The Assault on Reason That's Crippling Our Democracy. Welcome, Professor Patterson. Yeah, thank you, Mark. All right. Well, you know, the, the book gets into big, big topics. And it, in, in a way, it rises above politics. You say uh, very early on, we're talking about here, quote, the corruption of thought, information, and common sense. Uh, so we, we're, we're, we're going across the ideological lines. We're looking at America as a civic whole here. But I thought we would open the discussion by getting to some specifics first, and we'll try to reach up to the, the big picture of what is going on. Uh, early on, you talk about the spread of conspiracy uh, thinking. We've always had conspiracy thinking in the United States, but it seems to be getting worse or at least more amplified. Uh, why don't you give us just an example of a typical conspiracy uh, circulating today? And then I'd follow up with the question, why are conspiracy theories so doggone hard to dispel? So I think a perfect example of a recent conspiracy theory is this idea circulating mainly on the right that um, <clears throat> Hillary Clinton and a number of other leading Democrats had a, were operating a child sex ring uh, out of a pizza shop in Washington. Now, on the face of it, that sounds absurd, and uh, but it was compelling enough for a gentleman in North Carolina to get in his pickup truck and uh, bring his guns along and go to that pizza shop in, in Washington. He had planned to go to the basement where the children were uh, said to be held, uh, and he told the patrons to leave, and then he shot up the joint and looked for the door to the basement. Well, as it happened, um, there was no door because there was no basement to that place. And, uh, you know, obviously it's a baseless conspiracy theory, uh, but yet uh, quite a large number, tens of millions of Americans believe that it was true or probably true. Um, and, uh, you know, once it was exposed and uh, the question came up, well, uh, there was no basement, so there must be not, nothing to the, to the conspiracy theory. Uh, those who held the theory argued that the person from Washington, from uh, North Carolina was actually what they call a false flag, someone that was designed to kind of lead the uh, investigation into a different direction, that uh, actually it was a plant of, Cl of Clinton's to, uh, uh, to essentially debunk the story. Um, and uh, so that's, a, I think, a, a good example of what many of these conspiracy th theories are like. Uh, Another one, let me just give you one other example that to some degree is more serious. Uh, and uh, this one circulated earlier, but it was the idea that uh, uh, the, the massacre, massacre of school children and teachers at the Sandy Hook uh, Elementary School in Connecticut um, was a hoax um, and that uh, it was carried out by actors uh, who did it uh, in order to kind of empower those that were seeking gun control. So uh, they're out there. They're pretty powerful. They're very hard to debunk uh, because unlike ordinary theories, which you bring evidence to bear uh, and you either kind of prove or disprove a theory through that means, uh, with conspiracy theories, there's no evidence uh, required. Uh, it's the lack of evidence 
that uh, makes the conspiracy theory accurate. And but if it's a lack of evidence, how do you disprove it? And uh, uh, and, and and so there's a kind of insularity, a circularity to the conspiracy theories that makes them very hard to debunk. And I imagine that those cases, even if they are few, in which a conspiracy theory, which initially sounded outlandish, but actually turned out to have some basis uh, that in, 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 in history we've seen a few of these happen, that that's enough to maintain the, the faith? Well, I think it is. I mean, it, it, it takes only a small piece of fact, I think, to, uh, to reinforce these, these theories. Uh, you know, there's quite recently around the impeachment hearings, there's been this argument that, uh, you know, the hacking of the, of the DNC was done by Ukraine and not by Russia. And, uh, you know, all of our intelligence agencies uh, indicated that, uh, Russians were metal were the meddlers in our 2016 campaign. Uh, a conspiracy theory is the alternative, and that's that Ukraine did it. And uh, and and yes, I mean, probably there was someone from Ukraine, as just about any country in the world, that meddled a little bit in our election. And uh, you uncover that particular fact, and of course that confirms the whole of the theory for the conspiracy theorists. So they're really difficult to debunk. It, it gets to something deep in the psyche of, of, of people. Uh, it, it, sat, it must satisfy something within them that is searching for what deeper secret explanations for what, what's going on in, in, in their lives, maybe, or in the, in the national life. And, and those things must have a satisfaction for them that... People do not wish to give up. You know, Freud once said one of the hardest things to to deal with 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 neurotic patients is to make them let go of of the satisfaction that, that they gained before, even if the behavior is a is a neurotic one. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that conspiracy theories uh, have somewhat the same function on the individual level as uh, as scapegoating does. Um, you know, when you scapegoat another group. Uh, it's usually because there's a problem that's out there. You're affected by it. Uh, uh, but if they're to blame, it's they're the reason. You're not the reason uh, why you have that particular problem. And we've seen a lot of scapegoating, for example, around recent immigrants uh, and wage stagnation, that uh, a reason why people aren't getting ahead on their jobs is because of the pressures uh, created in the market, the labor market, by recent immigrants. Uh, that's a classic case of scapegoating. Uh, the problem is them, not us. Uh, and I think uh, conspiracy theories uh, have somewhat the same same function for people. Uh, something bad has happened. Uh, and uh, in the case, let's say, of the impeachment uh, around Ukraine, something bad has happened. Uh, but uh, it's not our side. Uh, that's uh, that's the problem. It's the other side. They've actually concocted something to to essentially blame us, uh, where in fact the blame really lies with them. So there's a psychological comfort, I think, that goes with it. It reinforces what we'd like to believe, uh, and we take comfort from that. And uh, all of those things make it hard to unravel these problems. Right. You know, you spend several pages talking about knowledge levels and, and ignorance in the United States. You note at one point, quote, the high school educated public of the 1950s knew as much about the structure of America's government as does the media-saturated college-educated public 
of today. Uh, Tom's, how's this possible? Well, I, I probably should turn that question back to you. I mean, I, I, I loved your book, The Dumbest Generation. I, uh, and uh, it, it, I think it really does speak to, you know, the problems that we have today. Uh, you know, a couple of things I think have happened. One, um, and I, I put this one in, in a secondary category. Uh, you know, we've really downgraded uh, civic education in the schools. Uh, you know, as, as we've kind of pushed towards standardized testing, uh, we've elevated on the curriculum the subjects around which the testing occurs and downgraded um, the subjects that, that aren't central to the testing and, and civics education is one of them. But I, I think a larger reason is actually a change in our information system. Uh, you know, at one point, um, if, uh, if you were at all connected through the media, it was difficult to avoid current affairs. Uh, you know, you had your local newspaper, you had the broadcast networks, first radio and then television, uh, and uh, you were almost force-fed the news uh, on a certain level. Uh, and then along comes cable in the 1980s, gives us a lot of choices. You know, at the dinner hour, we didn't have to watch ABC, CBS, or NBC Evening News. We could uh, flip over to ESPN and catch the latest sports or watch a movie on HBO and so on. The internet comes along, uh, offers thousands of choices uh, to us. And uh, so it's much easier today to to avoid public affairs. Uh, now, now, some people go the other direction, of course. They, they, they really dig in, you know, the junkies, the political junkies, uh, you know, get more exposure than they ever could under the old system. I mean, it's it's there for them 24 hours a day. But for the people without much interest in politics, uh, they don't have to attend to it. And uh, a lot of the learning that occurred uh, in the public uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago was inadvertent. It wasn't that people were deeply interested in politics and public affairs, but they were exposed to it regularly uh, uh, through their use of the media. And, uh, you know, I think that more than anything explains the fact that, uh, you know, that uh, you would think that as we become a better educated society that we would know more about politics. But but in fact, uh, we're kind of in a stagnant position in that regard. Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in 1970, it's probably impossible for younger people to conceive that in 1970, everybody, every night, watched Walter Cronkite, Huntley and Brinkley, or, or Howard K. Smith over there at, at ABC News. Everyone watched it. They were tremendously influential. They, they were sort of telling America every day what was going on in, in, in the civic sphere. And as you said, newspapers. Um, every major city had, had, had at least two newspapers, one in the morning, uh, often one in the evening. And it was just sort of written into the regular patterns of, of daily life. So, yeah, even, even, even the kids in the room who didn't really want to watch that, they, they, they did. They picked it up uh, uh, inadvertently. It was just sort of civic, civic discussion was everywhere. And that proliferation of cable first and then the Internet. Uh, you're right. You're right. And that's why you say it's a media-saturated public uh, of, of today. Now, a, a question. You, you make a distinction between the misinformed and the uninformed. And you actually say that the misinformed are more dangerous than the uninformed. Why is that? Well, you've written about the uninformed, and uh, some of my past work also dealt with uh, the uninformed. You know, we've always had 
this issue around public opinion and our politics as to how much people know about the issues that are being discussed and debated and whether their opinions are informed or not. Uh, but for the uninformed, they don't know. Uh, and uh, when asked, they'll say, I don't know. Um, and uh, the misinformed are different. Uh, the misinformed don't know, uh, but they don't know they don't know. They think they know. Uh, and so they're more willing to act on their misinformation. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, and the problem, and Walter Lippmann outlined this very well in his classic book, Public Opinion, that our opinions are not a response to the real world. They're our response to the world as we think it is. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, when we do act, when we act on our opinions, the impact is on the real world. I mean, it's one of the great challenges, I think, of, of an informed public is to get the public to be driven by what's out there and to be evidence-based in its thinking so that when they do act, uh, their response is what you would you would think and what you would like to achieve in the public sphere. Uh, when we're misinformed, we're still acting in the public sphere, but we're making choices uh, that aren't uh, connected to what's really out there. And I think a good classic example of that now is the invasion uh, of Iraq. Now, it may be that the Bush administration was so intent on invading Iraq that it wouldn't much matter what, what the public thought about that particular issue. But we know from studies uh, that a, a lot of Americans were deeply misinformed about Iraq in the lead up to the uh, invasion. Uh, a majority thought that Iraq was involved in the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Uh, there is no hand of Iraq on those attacks. Uh, and that's not where the terrorists came from. Uh, and yet the people who thought that Iraq was deeply involved in those attacks were about four times more likely than well-informed Americans to favor the invasion of Iraq. So their opinions, their sense of what the reality was that Iraq was involved and therefore we need to, to intervene so that we didn't have another one of these attacks, they supported overwhelmingly supported the invasion. Uh, and uh, that's an example, I think, of a, of a misinformed group of voters acting on an opinion that has impact in the real world. Now, maybe the Bush administration, if the public uh, would have been strongly against it because they knew uh, that Iraq was not involved in the 9-11 attacks, maybe they'd have been forced into another choice. Maybe they'd have been forced to use economic sanctions and we'd have been saved uh, some of the uh, uh, developments that have happened since. I mean, I, I think it's interesting uh, that the report came out recently about how much of what the administrations, and this is Democratic as well as Republican administrations, have told us about Iraq and Afghanistan uh, was false, uh, untruthful, and uh, how much that fed into the public opinion. Of course, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a question that deserves looking at too. But I, I saw that I saw that a couple of day, days ago. But but Thomas, that story seems to have sunk like a stone, uh, probably because the, not only because of the impeachment, but. It, it just, it, just, it hasn't been pursued. No, I think that's right. I mean, I do think the impeachment has kind of taken the air out of every other issue for the moment. But, um, but, I, do th but I do think it, 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 is, it fits a more general pattern. Uh, you know, I, I do think that the, the news moved more slowly at an earlier time where uh, an event would stay on the agenda longer. And we know the way that people learn. We don't, one exposure usually isn't enough uh, 
to acquaint us with an issue, to bring us up to speed. Usually we, we require repeated exposures, but in this media world where they're chasing the latest story, uh, you know, sometimes the, the, unit, <clears throat> the unit of news now is, is minutes rather than days. And, uh, you know, these issues come and go uh, with surprising speed. And if you're wondering about why people conflate things, why they're confused about things, uh, why they know so little about certain of these issues that are so important, uh, is that they're not on their radar screen for very long. Right. Now, there's a maybe a tragic trend that you identify here when you say that better educated people are less uninformed than low educated people but they tend to be more misinformed. Now, one, one likes to think that more education means less, less ignorance, but also less misinformation. But we might see a trend working in the other direction? Well, on some issues, not on all issues, but on some issues, it's the case that um, the better informed are the most misinformed. And, uh, you know, when scholars have tried to work that through, they, they, they describe it as the smart idiot effect. Um, uh, the more education you have, the more likely you are to be able to uh, pull information and pieces together, construct an argument in your mind about why something is the way that it is. And how that works with misinformation, it makes it easier for them to kind of pluck the pieces out of the information environment that are supportive of what they'd like to believe. And they more easily kind of assemble a supportive argument than people who know less. And uh, you know, and, and it, I think a good example of that is on uh, on on climate change. I mean, we've we've got 99 plus percent of climate scientists saying that the climate is changing, that it's being driven primarily by human activity, uh, and yet we've got large numbers of people in one of our political parties uh, who deny uh, climate change or say that it's due to natural causes such as sunspots. Uh, and then when you look within that party as to who the climate deniers are, it tends to be the better educated uh, individuals in that uh, in that party. And, uh, you know, they've got more information. They've, they're more practiced at constructing kind of arguments and the like, and they've created a reality for themselves uh, that's put them at some distance from the actual reality. What was the fairness doctrine? To tell our listeners what the fairness doctrine was and what happened to it. Well, the Fairness Doctrine uh, was put out by the Federal Communications Commission, uh, derived from, as all of their decisions have to be, from statutory legislation, uh, in this case, the Communications Act. And uh, what the FCC declared uh, around the Fairness Doctrine was that if you had a broadcast license, if you were a broadcaster, that was a privilege. Uh, that wasn't a right. Uh, broadcast frequencies were scarce. And so you had a public obligation that attended uh, your being granted a, a broadcast license. And uh, part of that obligation was to be fair uh, in terms of your treatment of opposing uh, positions on issues of the opposing political parties. Practically, what that meant is that if you did a, uh, if you ran a conservative talk show in prime time, uh, then you also had to do a liberal talk show in prime time. And uh, that actually inhibited uh, the airing of, of talk shows because most station owners weren't all that interested in airing programs that uh, contradicted what they believed. They wanted to only play those that, that fit uh, their political beliefs. And so it really inhibited the airing of uh, 
of, of strongly partisan broadcasts. Uh, and then in 1987, at the urging of uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, the FCC rescinded that doctrine. Uh, Congress uh, passed uh, legislation that would have overrode uh, the FCC's decision, but Reagan vetoed it. And they didn't have the two-thirds majorities in the House and Senate to override the veto. So the fairness doctrine went away. And that's basically uh, the story of why we have so much partisan talk now on broadcast. Uh, I mean, it's a huge audience. There are about 50 million Americans who are weekly listeners to talk radio. And uh, and for the most part, they're, they're fed an alternative reality. And that's true on the right or the left. Most of those talk shows are on the right. But it doesn't make a lot of difference, as one study showed, whether you you have a kind of a left-leaning talk show or a right-leaning talk show, uh, you know, use the same devices, half-truths, mischaracterizations, uh, and the like to, to tell your story because you're, you're really trying to appeal to an audience that has a strong political bias. And uh, it's a major source of the misinformation that we have. And uh, it's not even-handed. Uh, we had it with the Fairness Doctrine. Now, I don't think you could put the Fairness Doctrine back in the bottle. Uh, I'm not sure it would make much difference. Uh, cable was never governed by the Fairness Doctrine. It's not a broadcast outlet. Uh, and the Internet uh, is not a broadcast uh, medium. So it's not governed by the Fairness Doctrine anyway. Uh, so that if you did reinstate it, uh, it would primarily affect what we hear on the radio and not through these other mechanisms. Well, what what the Internet has opened up is situations such as one of them you describe in which some guy in Eastern Europe with a laptop can have an enormous audience in the United States that he 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 can get as many as many views or or listens as you know the the uh, you know the old the old uh, the old Dan Rather CBS News. How did that happen? I mean, what does that mean? When this this man named Ovidayu Drabota, whom you whom you profiled, that's an extraordinary phenomenon that that is happening here. Yeah, he's a really interesting character, actually, and um, uh, he's a good example. So, uh, as best we can tell, he was an independent operator who. Uh, at least when he started out, was doing it for the money because you you actually could uh, the more visitors you had to your site, the uh, the more you could get through the advertising that you were providing, and uh, and he would just do these little videos, yeah, yeah, and uh, and and he'd also mock up these fake news stories and uh, a fake news story that a lot of people saw during the 2016 campaign was the one where. Uh, it was claimed that uh, uh, Pope Francis has had endorsed Donald Trump for the for the presidency. That was uh, most of the traffic on that particular story went through his site, and uh, you know, but but you know what what the internet the internet has it respects no boundaries. The, the, you know, I, I shouldn't say no boundaries. I mean, China controls the internet in its country, but unless a country controls its boundaries, uh, outside actors can play as easily in that space as the domestic ones. And uh, and we saw that with Russia in the 2016 campaign with other individuals like the one we've just uh, we've just mentioned. They also played heavily into 2016. I wish I could say that outside agents were the uh, or foreign agents were the only problem. Uh, the bigger problem, actually, is our homegrown uh, disruptors. Uh, 
they're out there too, and they're spreading misinformation like crazy. And uh, what's interesting to me about misinformation uh, is that it travels faster uh, than than information that is evidence-based. Uh, there's a nice study done by a group at Harvard that shows that fake news travels about six times faster than actual news. Now, when you think about fake news, there's a reason for it. Uh, you know, usually it's more sensational. It's more attention grabbing. Uh, usually it's just outrageous. And there's something about outrage that attracts attention and uh, makes us more likely to share it. And uh, so there are good reasons why it travels more quickly. But, you know, we abet this process. Uh, a lot of the information that gets out there uh, when it goes viral is because it plays to our instincts and we're quite willing uh, to have our instincts played to. Uh, you know, we like sensationalism. We like outrage. We like it when the other side's getting gored. Uh, and we're much more likely to pass that information along. But in doing so, we become part of the problem and not part of the solution. And, and there's no way for us to punish people for intentionally creating, disseminating misinformation or disinformation? No, we cannot do it individually. Now, the platforms can do it, and, uh, and, and, and they're starting to try to, to do that. I mean, uh, so, you know, a, a prime disseminator of misinformation was Alex Jones. He was the primary agent behind the Sandy Hook conspiracy theory. Uh, he kind of cut his teeth on 9-11, uh, where he argued that uh, it was also a conspiracy theory, that it was orchestrated by uh, the deep state uh, in Washington to further uh, uh, geopolitical goals that they had. Uh, so, uh, you know, he was he was taken off the platform, you know, by by the major, you know, by Facebook and 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 Twitter and uh, YouTube, they delisted him. Uh, now, there's something out there called the, the dark web. So he's still there and people can find him. Uh, but, uh, you know, they can censor these uh, these agents and uh, they're increasingly trying to do that. And uh, they're making it harder uh, for people to kind of put out, at least pay for through advertising, put out misinformation. Uh, you know, anything that has a political component now on Facebook, you know, has to be screened by Facebook before, if you're buying an ad, before you can, you can air it. So there are ways to, to deal with this, but, um, you know, it's a big space. And uh, a lot, I think a lot of the criticisms of, of, of platforms like Facebook are misplaced. We think this is easy to do, that they should be able to take care of this misinformation. Well, when you think about the size of, the, uh, of that sphere, there are more than a billion sites out there, and uh, you know, you know, there there are about as many sites as there are people in China. And uh, China is very effective at controlling its people, but uh, they can't control everybody. And, and when you have on, on, you know, when did when did Facebook pass a billion users? What when when you get that many? How do you how do you monitor everyone? Right? You do you do it with machines? You you know they uh, they do have now a lot of people on on staff who have a responsibility for this. But th what comes to their attention comes to their attention through the algorithms uh, that they have developed to try to spot, uh, uh, you know, the rise of misinformation. Uh, we were doing that at our center uh, last year as well for the midterms. Uh, we had a staff of about 10 uh, people who included uh, 
com computer uh, specialists, uh, engineers, uh, people who are content experts. Um, and, uh, you know, we were able to pick up some of this stuff and alert the platforms. Uh, we also um, had in our network about 75 of the leading news outlets. And uh, when we saw some of this stuff starting to bubble through the through the blogosphere and the like, we would alert them so that they didn't pick it up and become amplifiers of the of the misinformation. What was your center again? Uh, it's a it's the uh, it's a part of the Kennedy School. It's the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Um, but uh, you know, I don't think we're even touching the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you know, uh, the depth of this problem is is just enormous, and uh, you know, and, and we'd like to think well. Maybe it would help if if Americans had more media literacy, and certainly there's some efforts in the schools now to teach media literacy. But when the when the internet came along in the '90s, you 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 talk about uh, all of the all of the you know glorious promises of this becoming. I think you used the the term a Garden of Eden of diverse voices and a marketplace of ideas. Did you expect this super consolidation that? set in with Google and Facebook, you know, the big giants that sort of take up so much of, of the internet. Did you, did you expect that? What's interesting to me about the way that the, the web has evolved, uh, we really saw this as kind of, we can go back to George H.W. Bush's, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, but there actually are factors within the way the internet works where size gets rewarded and, uh, We've seen it not only with the platforms, but we've seen it with the news outlets. Uh, you know, the internet has been very good for some news organizations that are national brands like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. You know, they have enormous followings on the internet. Uh, what it's been bad for are the smaller outlets. Uh, and we thought, you know, they would benefit enormously from the internet. Well, they haven't. They've actually been disadvantaged by it because they're not a brand name, and uh, we're attracted to brands. And once, once the dynamics, the economic dynamic of the internet kicks in, and the resources start to go to to just a few of the players, then they start to have increasing muscle in the marketplace, and they're able to leverage it. We've seen that around Facebook and Google. Uh, not only in terms of their ability to attract audience, uh, to make a lot of money through advertising, but also when they see a rival popping up uh, to go out and buy the rival <laughs> and make it part of their brand, right? So, um, yeah, I, I didn't foresee this uh, this aggregation problem, which is very severe on the internet. And in fact, in the in, when you look at news, um, you think about newspapers, uh, there's actually more concentration uh, of the news audience on the internet than there is through the newspaper or on television. And that gives you a little bit of a sense of, of just the dynamics of what the internet is like. Right. You know, I uh, last question. Uh, I see in education standards starting to incorporate a, a standard of sort of media literacy in which you teach, when you have teachers trying to teach high school students mostly, to distinguish between reliable sources, credible sources, and and unreliable sources, do you think efforts like this in, in schools will improve the misinformation disinformation problem, or or do you think it's just it's it's just going to get worse? 
Well, it's hard to imagine it can get any worse. I mean, it is it, the state of, of knowledge today is, is so bad. It's it's almost imaginable that it would evolve even further. But, you know, I would like to think that media literacy uh, programs help. Um, and I would like to think that uh, civic courses help. Um, we've got some pretty good studies that um, they don't make much difference. Uh, doesn't mean that they're not worth doing. Uh, but as we move out of the school into the workplace into you know our relationships and the like uh then kind of human nature begins to take over and these processes these psychological processes that presumably have been there about as long as we've been around begin to kick in you know the our preference for supportive information kicks in uh and that can lend to us to suspend belief to uh, to grab at information that supports what we'd like to believe without worrying at all about its accuracy. And uh, I love uh, what the Nobel laureate uh, Daniel Kahneman said about that particular problem. Um, and he said, we have an enormous capacity to ignore our own ignorance. And, uh, and it's because of these psychological preferences that we have. And I do think they overwhelm um, you know, things like media literacy coursework or civics coursework, sadly. The book is How America Lost Its Mind, The Assault on Reason That's Crippling Our Democracy. Thank you, Professor Patterson. Mark, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. <laughs>